0: Disciples of nations. I think most of us easily understand what making disciples means. If you're a disciple of Jesus, you could probably describe how you became a disciple and how you grew as a disciple and the principal personalities who are involved in your life to bring you to that point. If you've been a disciple for some time as part of the ministry of this church, you are probably making disciples. You have been involved in bringing people to that point of faith. And trust in Jesus and growing in that. So you were made a disciple. You are making disciples. And I think we understand that. But what does making disciples of all nations look like? What does that bear, What does that conjure up in your mind? Now bear in mind that the word nations in this passage uh, is the Greek word ethne. Uh, and it is not referring to nation state. It's referring to those nations. Uh, tribes and peoples who identify uh, as separate from others because of their language and culture. Well, Daniel in Africa gives us a glimpse of what making disciples of a nation looks like. Listen to his story. In the small African country we call home, there is a Muslim tribe of around 3 million people. We first began looking for ways to share Christ with them 30 years ago. However, they always looked at us with great suspicion and for years it was difficult to make any inroads among them. As a minority group, they could see their language and culture slowly eroding and at great risk of disappearing altogether. They blamed the government and the Christians for this, so I I suppose looking at us with suspicion was understandable. Like them, we believed that the disappearance of their language and culture was not God's desire. So after 17 years living among them, we began to work on a Bible translation to help preserve their language. As we did did this, we invited leaders in the tribe to talk with us about the project. At first, they were suspicious and a little hostile. But we soon noticed the change as they felt honored by the high quality of our work. Increasingly, they began to lean on us to help them preserve their language and culture. Then something remarkable happened. As they read the scriptures, certain chiefs were impacted by the teaching they saw. High levels of divorce among their people had become a huge problem, so when they heard Bible passages about marriage, they asked for a booklet containing these verses to be printed. Soon judges were issuing divorces, soon judges issuing divorces had these booklets in their hands. After reading the verse, what God has joined together, let not man separate, many judges began telling squabbling couples, because God put you together, I don't have the authority to grant a divorce. The judges go on to insist the couple read the booklet together because, inverted commas, it will preserve our language and change your life. Across the tribe, it is also being used to counsel couples Divorce rates have dropped considerably, and leaders, convicted by other passages in the Word of God, have stopped taking bribes. A handful of high level chiefs who each rule between 30,000 and 150,000 people have now submitted their lives to Jesus. They report that a few hundred in their tribe have begun following Jesus too. They are now requesting we produce books on what the Bible says about leadership and a book containing Bible verses that will teach their children good behavior. Now having gained the trust of the overall chief of the tribe, he is strongly promoting all these books among his people. Simple discipleship and obedience to the word of God is impacting a whole society, a whole nation, a whole people. Today, our topic from the text is the Great Commission, but more specifically, I want to ask, what's so great about the Great Commission? Many find these words greatly intimidating. They produce a kind of nervousness in us. We think we have to come with the mental equivalent of body armor on because perhaps the finger will be pointed at us to give more, to pray more, or perhaps to go to some hot, inhospitable place in Africa where the people not only don't welcome our message, but if we proclaim it faithfully, become hostile to us. I hope you will be stirred to whatever is an appropriate response this morning, but I pray that the response comes because God's Holy Spirit through his word helps you gain a fresh appreciation of this great commission and the great Savior who uttered it. So why is this command of our Lord Jesus Christ so great? Because it sets before us an immensely great and difficult task. And one which requires great sacrifice. Going is difficult. It means leaving behind the things and people we love, the familiar, the secure, the comfortable. In 1812, American Adoniram Judson wrote to the father of Anne Heseltine, the woman he was hoping to marry and take with him to Burma as a missionary, to ask her for, uh, her, ask him for her hand in marriage. Sir, he wrote, now, just listen to these words of a, um, to to the father of the potential bride. Sir, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to expose her to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India. To every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all of this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened, with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from all those saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. How's that for a letter to a future father-in-law? One of Anne's father's friends said he would rather tie his daughter to a post than allow her to go overseas with a madman like that. But Anne's father was made of different stuff. And he gave the decision back to Anne. And so Anne and Adoniram were married and arnold's description of what might happen to his wife in burma was remarkably close to what transpired she died 9 years after their arrival in burma or after losing all three of her children two of them to tropical diseases and much much other suffering besides going was difficult back then it is still difficult But particularly because the remaining unreached people groups remain largely unreached because they are in difficult to reach places. So, the Great Commission is great, I argue, because going can be hugely difficult and painful and usually requires great sacrifice. It also requires great faith. If going is difficult, making disciples is impossible. We can't make disciples because we can't make anyone a Christian. This command is like saying to you, go to the graveyard, pick a tomb, and raise someone from the dead. We are, the Bible tells us, by nature dead in our trespasses and sins. Nothing fellow humans can do can change the deadness of our spirits. We have no innate ability to hear the call of the gospel unless God's Holy Spirit gives us ears to hear and eyes to hear and eyes to see. We need, as Jesus said, to be born again of God. And the level of impossibility is raised several notches because we are not just to make disciples of individuals here and there, but of whole nations. And if with God's help we are enabled to make some disciples, we are to baptize them into the family of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, having them publicly affirm what God has done inwardly, bringing thereby all kinds of persecution and sufferings down upon them, which is the usual result in places like North Africa. And then, we have to teach them to obey. Not just information transfer, transfer, but life transformation. Again, apart from God's help, impossible. This great commission requires great sacrifice and great faith in the God of the impossible, which is often rewarded by great miracles. That's why it's great. A young woman came into our language center in North Africa Uh, She was 19, extremely bright, extremely proficient in English. She would read a whole Dostoevsky novel over a long weekend. Uh, And and her first language wasn't even English. And uh, she came to our our center the first day, and uh, as I would do with uh, new clients, take them around the center. We came to our library, which had over a 1,000 books. And and she stopped and she said, "Uh, Mr. Dudley, this is an impressive collection of books, but do you have copy of the King James Bible here by any chance. Uh, Disguising my surprise as best I could, I said, no, 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 we don't uh, carry uh, Bibles in our library, but I'm sure I can arrange a King James Bible for you and perhaps an NIV. Three or four months later, one of our co-workers was sitting with Wendy, as we called her, and asking her, so how's it going? Uh, Have you been reading the Bible? Where are you at in your journey? Oh, she said, I finished the Bible and I need to get baptized. And that was without any input that we were aware of from ourselves. God at work in a miraculous way. Every conversion is a miracle of God. And we saw several by the grace of God in North Africa. And they are still seeing them. Praise God. And we, we know that this takes great faith, great faith. Not just on our part. Yes, it takes some faith to, to cross the seas and go to a, a difficult place. But We stand on the shoulders of missionaries from 1880 in our particular country who were sowing the word of God with blood, sweat, tears, and many prayers. We were also standing on the shoulders of our home church, which was Kensington Baptist Church when when Andy and Kath were there. And, And a host of friends who were praying for us, looking forward with anticipation to our next update about Wendy, about Nancy, about Mohammed. And... So it takes great faith for this great commission to be fulfilled. It also requires great weakness. The measure of the greatness of these words is that they came to just 11 people. When we read this passage, we read it with 2,000 years of church history behind us. With obedience to this command, having produced a truly worldwide church that is now present in literally every nation state on on the face of the earth, including North Korea and Saudi Arabia. So it doesn't come to us with the same force, the same sense of sheer immensity and impossibility. And yet Jesus is about to entrust to these 11 the task of building his church in the world. And they had never been beyond the borders of Palestine. The number 11, too, is itself a reminder of weakness in the face of this task. The 12th apostle, as we know, had betrayed him. The rest had abandoned him in his hour of greatest need, and the leader among them had even denied strenuously he even knew him. They had all, at various points during the previous three years, shown great small-mindedness and pride, self-centeredness, slowness to understand, bordering on willful blindness. Nor were any of them from the religious or educated or wealthy elite. They were unschooled, ordinary men. And yet Jesus is passing this task of building his church onto these 11. And some of them, we are told in verse 17, are doubting even now. We ask ourselves, what possibly can they be doubting? There's that apocryphal story of Jesus ascending to heaven and the angels asking him when he arrives, so what's the plan? And Jesus pointed to these 11 and the angels turned back to him somewhat skeptically and asking, and what's plan B? Well, there was no plan B. These 11 men were it. And I wonder if some of you, as you come to this passage, like some of these disciples, are doubting, are hesitating. Doubting that God could use you, yes, even you in this great enterprise. This is a subtle snare of the enemy, and one to which I have uh, uh, fallen myself. I recall when we lived in Muslim-dominated northern Mozambique, feeling utterly useless and ready to throw in the towel. A third rate Christian, a 10th rate missionary, I prayed to God, Oh Lord, there must be someone else better equipped than me to do this work. Why didn't you send them? Why don't you send them? And I remember the strong impression on my spirit of the Holy Spirit saying, Yes, there is someone better equipped than you, but I didn't send them, I sent you. Perhaps you too are discouraged by your sin and failure. You look around at the the divisions and problems in the the worldwide church, the enormous task that remains, and you ask, what difference can I possibly make? And you too hesitate. You doubt. The Great Commission defines a great God-sized task made all the greater, all the more impossible because it is entrusted to frail, doubting, hesitating, sinful saints like you and me. It therefore needs a great foundation, a foundation which Aberdeen-born Mary Slessor of Calabar. Calabar is in the southeast part of today's Nigeria, which she understood very well. When she responded to the question, Mary, are you not afraid of going to the malarial swamps and jungles of Calabar, a veritable graveyard of missionaries? And she responded, why should I fear? I am on a royal mission. I am in the service of the King of Kings. And here is the foundation Mary Slessor and many others who have gone forth have trusted in. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Next slide, please. Something has happened so that Jesus was given something. Something is true for Jesus that was not true before. Authority was given to him. The Lord and creator of the universe had to be given authority. Authority. What can this mean? What is so great about these words is that they are not just the climax of Matthew's story. They are actually the climax of the Bible's whole story. If we substitute the word dominion, all dominion has been given to me in heaven and on earth so that it reads in that way. This reminds us of the dominion Adam was given over creation to order it, to claim it, to bring it under his rule and management. But Adam forfeited that dominion when he rebelled. And humanity's been living with the consequences of that ever since, in all the the dysfunction and misery and confusion and shame. And it's not just that we're lost in our guilt and shame, but we're lost in our destiny. We have fallen short of the glory for which we were created. We have lost the privileges that we were created for. And this is the story of the whole Bible. What Adam failed to do, Jesus, the second Adam, will do. And the guilt that Adam incurred because of his sin, Jesus will undo. And the dominion that Adam lost, Jesus will have restored to him. Of course, he is the eternal son of God who rules And who reigns over all things. But that doesn't provide salvation and restoration for us. Our only hope of restoration is when someone else comes and does what Adam failed to do. And Jesus came. And he did that. And he did it in our humanity as the son of man. And now that Jesus has done all that, he says, All authority, all dominion has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And what Jesus did by his death and resurrection was that he so undid what Adam had failed to do that in a sense, as a reward for that, his father has given not only him but us back what Adam lost. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. It's about what dominion of, what the dominion of God looks like when the dominion enters your life. Blessed are the poor in spirit because they're the ones who experience the dominion of God. So he's starting the work of restoration. And here are these 11 disciples on the mountain who have experienced the dominion of God. And he's saying to them in this extraordinary statement, you're going to go as my ambassadors because all authority was given to me. And it was given to me because I was given over to death, given over to the worst that Satan could do, given over to to the guilt of your sin because I crushed the head of the serpent Satan and because I was vindicated in my resurrection. Now that the new world order has begun, you are going to go To the ends of the earth, and those you win and disciple will teach, you will teach to do the same. And you're going to express that authority in your lives and in your witness and in your fruitfulness. So it is a great commission because it sets before the disciples of Jesus a great and humanly impossible task, but one which has a great foundation underpinning it the authority of Jesus. Himself. In fact, we cannot bear this command unless we know that Christ has this authority. Missions, after all, is about reclaiming what belongs to him. It's possible for us to live in the way Jesus wants us to live, to go in the way he wants us to go, because all dominion, all authority in heaven and earth is his. Therefore, none of the authority is yours over mine, over anything. You have no authority over your life Your calling, your ambitions, your money, your relationships. You don't have authority over the circumstances that surround you. That's why the non-Christians hate the gospel and why we Christians love it. If all authority is his and none is mine, then I can live in contentedness in whatever my circumstances be. Be it in sickness, in health, in marriage or in singleness, in wealth or in poverty. Because I know that he is in control. He has All dominion. Nothing happens to you apart from his authority. When that goes deep into my soul, it transforms every detail of my life, every reaction. I can say, because he has all authority, nothing can happen to me outside of his sovereign grace. That was what these 11 men needed to hear as he commanded them to finish the work of building his church that he had begun. And if we get this, if we truly get it, we will be gripped by the greatness of our Savior and by his great grace towards us and we will say as C.T. Studd, the missionary pioneer and founder of WEC once said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. We still need to understand this in the 21st century because despite 2,000 years of church history and growth, there is still... Much to be done. Here are a few statistics for you. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity counts Christians of all kinds. And they tell us that in 1900, 33% of the world was Christian. In 2000, 33% of the world was Christian. And by 2050, unless things change dramatically, the world will still be 33% Christian. What are those who have no access to the gospel? Who, realistically, will not have a chance to hear the good news and respond to it in their lifetime? Well, this think tank estimates that 50% of the world was unevangelized in 1990, and 28% is unevangelized today. That's good news. The percentage of the world with no access to the gospel has dropped significantly. However, the bad news in 1900... The total population of unevangelized people was 880 million. Today, due to population growth, that number has risen to over 2 billion. So, while the percentage of unevangelized people was cut nearly in half, the total number of people with no access to the gospel has more than doubled. The remaining task has grown in size. If we measure these groups, that do not have a local indigenous church that can bring the gospel to the whole group without the aid of cross-cultural missionaries, the kind of thing that we heard our friends talking about up here earlier, reproducing indigenous biblical churches. If we measure those groups that don't have those kinds of churches, Joshua Project, uh, this uh, database, Christian database, lists around around 7,000 unreached groups across our world, including 540 or so that we heard about in China. The brutal fact is that by any of these measures, none of our existing efforts will reach all the people in all of the groups anytime soon. This is partly because most Christian effort goes to places where the church already is, rather than places where it is not. I could give you some financial statistics on that, but I won't bore you with that. The fact is Uh, Most money given to Christian causes is spent on ourselves, and even most mission money is spent in majority Christian areas. Deployment of personnel also reflects this problematic imbalance. Only 3% of cross-cultural missionaries, those who go learn a language across a cultural barrier, only 3% of those serve among the classically unreached. If we count all full-time Christian workers across the world, only 0.4% serve the unreached. We send one missionary for every 179,000 Hindus, every 260,000 Buddhists, and every 405,500 Muslims. So this great commission, or this commission is great because of the immense task still facing the Church of Christ in all of its weakness. And because it is undergirded by this great foundation of Christ's authority and power. And because, finally, It is undergirded by a great promise of his presence. And surely, I am with you always to the very ends of this age. I am with you always. Jesus is identifying himself here as the God who revealed himself to Moses in Exodus as the I am who I am. This same Jesus, who was named prophetically as Emmanuel, God with us, I am with us, he now promises to be with his disciples, always. He knew, and they knew, that the path ahead would be one of suffering and sacrifice. He promises to be our light in darkness, our joy in sorrow, our comfort in distress, and our support in sickness and death, he promises never to leave or forsake us. I had the privilege of visiting an old missionary saint yesterday in West Edinburgh West Hospital, and the presence of Jesus in that room as I visited with her was so real. On the 5th of December, 1850, a party of seven men with the Patagonian Mission Society, led by former naval officer Alan Francis Gardner, landed on Picton Island, at the very tip of South America, part of modern Chile. The tribe there were hostile, the climate was severe, the the, the countryside was barren. The party were also hindered by terrible failures, such as the devastating realization that they had left nearly all their ammunition for their, their rifles on the ship, leaving them unable to hunt for fresh food. One by one, the men died of exposure and starvation. A few days before he, he died, Gardner, with the last strength he had, recorded these words in his diary I am, by his abounding grace, kept in perfect peace, refreshed with a sense of my Saviour's love, and an assurance that all is wisely and mercifully appointed. My care is all cast upon God, and I am only waiting his time and his good pleasure dispose of me as he shall see fit. Whether I live or die, may it be in him. I commend my body and my soul to his care and keeping. Someone can only write that who's experiencing the truth of this verse. I am. The I am is with you always. The Great Commission is great because it is an impossibly great task to be carried out by frail children of dust like you and me, but which has a great foundation in the authority given to our great savior, who makes a great promise of his abiding presence with us. Final slide. Another great missionary pioneer, William Carey, once said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for him. This great commission is a great invitation to do just that. Let's think about this for a few moments in prayer.